How are we doing? Can you guys hear me? There we go. Man, it's my favorite week of the year. Easter week. You guys excited? Okay, that was lame. I hope that's not what you guys sound like when you're excited. Um, so we got a lot of things happening this week, but before I do that, let me just give just a couple announcements. One, I love you guys. I mean, not only are you good people, you're a good-looking group of people, you're a smart group of people, you're a faithful group of people, but there's two things that my church just, you guys got to work on, okay? One, we've been working on for years, and I've just kind of given up, clapping, all right? Now, I don't want to be racist here, but white folks, we're a little bit behind the Hispanic church, all right? You come to Hispanic service at 9.30, there's some rhythm there, all right? 11 o'clock, woo, all right? So we'll keep working on that. I've kind of given up on it, though, all right? The second is parking. Those yellow things in the parking lot called tire stops, those represent a parking space. So what you want to try to do is take your car to one of those tire stops and park in front of it. If there's a spot where there is no tire stop, what we're trying to say is not a place to park the car. Now, if there's no spots available with a tire stop, park wherever you want. We're just glad you're here. But for the best of your ability, if you find a yellow tire stop and it's available, let's park there. All right? Try that out for me. Because it's a little bit like if you roll up on this place right around 11 o'clock and walk that park, you're like, who are these people? In fact, what I've started to do is we go to parking lots, and if we see someone who's a terrible parker, we put a Harmony Baptist Church, please come see us. Because we're like, you'll fit right in with our people. <laughs> All right. Those two public service announcements are done. I love you guys. Good parkers or not. Um, let me go over the things this week. It's, it's Easter week. Sometimes we call it Holy Week. we got a lot of things happening this week. So Wednesday, we're going to do a prayer meeting at 7 o'clock. Uh, so we will not have our regular Wednesday night Bible studies. We will have prayer meeting. We're going to try to do it outside. And what we're going to do is not just pray for the things that are happening here, but also take some time to reflect on Christ's time in the garden as he was praying that week before he was about to be sacrificed for all on our behalf. And so we just want to take some time and remember what he was going through, how he was praying so passionately with his father, and try to do the same thing in our lives. On Thursday night, we're going to have a Lord's, uh, our Last Supper remembrance. Um, this isn't a full-blown meal, but what we're going to do is we're going to have some lamb, we're going to have some unleavened bread, we're going to have some bitter herbs. Those are the three main elements that God asks his people to have at Passover meal. And what we're going to do is we're going to partake in those, and we're just going to read through that last night where Jesus said Lord's Supper with his disciples. And again, just kind of reliving what he was doing that week. On Friday at 2.15, uh, Brother Joe is going to lead us in our Good Friday service. So he'll be here in the sanctuary. But again, goal, kind of go through what happened that day on the cross. Finish right around that time when Jesus would have said it is finished. Uh, on Saturday is our family picnic. Uh, so at 10 a.m. Or, I'm sorry, is it 10? 
11. At 11, we will be uh, starting the picnic. We got the Back Road Baptist Barbecue team cooking for us again. Uh, so we'll have some good barbecue. We'll have some good uh, side dishes. We got two or three bounce castles for the kids. We got an egg hunt. Uh, if you haven't been before, it's just, a, it's just a fun time for us to hang out as a church and celebrate this time of year that's so special to us as Christians when, when God showed his full-blown power. All right, and then Sunday uh, we have 7:30 a.m. sunrise service out on the lawn. Uh, then we have breakfast at 8:30. Then we have Sunday school at 9:30 and Spanish service at 9:30, and then um, 11 o'clock English service. So tons of things happening this week. Again, I'll encourage you. This is one of the times of the year where the calendar helps us, right? Everybody, whether Christian or non-Christian, knows Easter's coming. So it's a great opportunity to invite people to church. As I've told you, we'll surprise them and let them know, hey, we're open every week of the year so they can keep coming back. But please invite people, invite family, invite friends, and let's have an awesome week remembering what God's done for us. All right, we good there? Amen. All right, sum up. You park where there's yellow. Come to all the cool Easter stuff. All right. We're pausing in our series um, on Exodus, um, and we're going to spend the next couple weeks going through uh, stuff related to the death of Christ, his resurrection, and really focusing on this time of year in Easter. Uh, today, what I want to talk about is, is what I call the brightest stark. Uh, to me, one of the most amazing things about God is his ability to take what you and I look at and think is terrible and turn it into something awesome. Uh, this week, we actually, um, th there's a park by our house that uh, they've just put in a trail. And so we took the kids there, and we hung out for a while and just spent some time out in the outdoors. And uh, we got back to the car, and um, Nicole had left the battery on. So we get to the car, and it's completely dead. Um, so, you know, we go to our roadside assistance, and they're like, it'll be a little bit over an hour for someone to get you there. So, so we, we say, okay, please come out and help us. And initially at first we were like, this, we're tired, the kids are hungry, we've already been at the park for an hour, okay. You know what happened? We hung out for the park for another hour, it was just a fantastic day. It, it was time with the kids, we had fun discussions, we had fun playing together, we had just, like, the, the phones all died on us. So there was no electronic devices to, to do anything with. And, and what had started when we first hit that button on the car is like, oh man, come on, are you kidding me? Turned into probably the best hour of the week that we had. And it's those things where God has a plan that's different than yours. God has a plan that when you look at it, you see bleakness. And he instead goes, no, this is actually going to be something awesome. And so that's why we have faith in our God, is he has this unbelievable ability to continually and regularly do this. Take those darkest moments from our perspective and actually make them the brightest in our lives. And so what I want to do today is look at one specific passage in which Christ does this so beautifully. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, we're going to jump to verse 32. And I probably tell this story or this sermon every year, but to me it is, it's one of the most profound in all of Scripture. Because it just so clearly explains who you are, who I am, and so clearly who our Lord is. 
we've talked often about how even as Christians, sometimes what we have the worst perspective on is who we are. I think honestly most of us, if we were just to be completely honest, we would go, I'm a good person. I even think most of us, if we said without Christ, are you good, are you bad, I think most of us would go, I'm a pretty decent human being. And I think throughout all of America and in most of the world, the thing most people struggle with is this concept that without Jesus, you deserve hell. Because most of us go, oh, we're not that bad. And that's the key, right? I'm not that bad. What this story does is it breaks down really just who we are. Who we are really, what we really have to offer God in and of ourselves when we are separated from Him. And what He in His grace offers us. The reality is if you just take man in and of himself, separated from God, we are not good. We're selfish. We're prideful. We're sinful. We struggle to love. And we focus completely on ourselves. And that's not to say that if you don't have God, you can't occasionally do good things. It's not to say if you don't have God that you can't make positive impact in other people's lives. It just means at the end of the day, when you and I are our own God, when we choose our own will and set our own course in our own direction, the focus is us. What makes us happy, what makes us comfortable, what gives us peace. And ultimately, that path for each and every one of us leads to the exact same place. A place where God is not. And when God is not there, you take all His love, all His power, all of His grace away as well, and you are left with the worst place in the entire world called hell. It's funny, I think a lot of people picture hell as being so terrible and that they think it's God punishing people. Going, I'm going to make this terrible, horrible place to scare you. And what people get don't get is, no, it, that's just what you get when you don't have God. All hell really is, is God giving people exactly what they've asked for. They've lived their whole life saying, I don't want to acknowledge you. I don't want you in my life. I don't want your word, your wisdom, your advice, any of it. I don't even think you're here. I want to live like there is no God. And what hell is, is a place where there is no God. What you and I just forget is how much the existence of God blesses everyone, even those who refuse to believe He's there. And so the reason hell is so terrible is not for God punishing you, it's for God going, I will give you what you've asked for. A place where there is no love, where there is no peace, where there is no forgiveness, where there is no grace. And so all of us need to truly acknowledge in our hearts that no matter how good we may think we are, no matter how talented we may think we are, at the end of the day, each and every one of us separated from Christ deserves hell. We have to understand that truth. We cannot earn this. And for many of us, that's a struggle because it's so counter to culture. In America, we teach, right, that you are capable. You can do anything you want to do. That you can achieve your dreams. You can be anything you want to be. Ultimately, what God teaches, you can't earn what I have. No matter how great you are, you could never show up and lay at my feet the price that you would need to pay to earn what I offer. Amen. 
what I offer can only be given to you in love. And so in Luke 23, what we capture is we capture a beautiful, beautiful example of who you are, who I am, and who Jesus is. And so to catch you up before we jump in, where we're at at this moment is Jesus has already been arrested, He's already been tried, and He's already been put on the cross. The hour of His death is imminent. And at this moment, if you were to see Christ, He is in as much pain as any person could be in. He's been beaten so badly that most say even if He never nailed Him to a cross, He would have died. He would have died just from the injuries that He's through. Now, on the cross, He's in unbelievable agony and pain. And what most of us forget about crucifixion is the reason you die is you die of suffocation. You die because as you're hanging here, the only way to get air to your lungs is to lift yourself up. Breathe in. And you have to keep doing this. But when you do that, you're pulling on wounds within yourself. And what tends to happen is your lungs fill up with bodily fluids and you start to suffocate on your own body. It's a painful, painful process. So here's Jesus, been betrayed by everybody, beaten almost to death, now on a cross, suffocating, and while doing this, has people mocking him the whole time. And I want you to listen to how he responds. This is Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to break this down because it's, it's so important for us to understand how really simple salvation is. It's funny because it's, 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 it's one paragraph. There's not a lot of complexity. And in fact, a lot of this clears up some of these, these foolish religious things that we sometimes lay on top of salvation. This story tells us that that man, that day, ended up in heaven with Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I want you to think for a second about that man and what he had to offer Jesus. Was that man ever going to tithe to Jesus in the church? No. Was that man ever going to share his testimony with somebody? 
Was that man ever going to walk and go build homes for the homeless, give food to the hungry? Was he ever going to go to Bible study or go to the church? What things, what activities did that criminal ever get to do for the church or for Jesus? None. So you look at this man and you go, we know what he'd already done in life. Not only was he called a criminal or a thief, but here's what we know. Romans didn't crucify everyone. Crucifixion was saved for the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was a publicly painful murder of a bad individual that was done publicly as a deterrent to anybody else. This man wasn't just a criminal. He's one of the worst criminals. Worthy enough for public execution. I'm doubting if we look at the resume of this man that we're going to find very much that he accomplished that we would say, that was good. That was positive. Man, he really made a great influence for those people. I think the majority of things we would find in his life were ugly, dark, and shameful. So up until this moment, what does he have to offer God? Can he offer merit? Good behavior? No. He's on the cross and his history, his resume offers nothing but sin. Now on the cross, what does he have to give? He can't promise a future life of service. He can't promise a future life of making disciples. He has nothing left except maybe a couple hours of breathing. That's it. From a worldly perspective, this man has nothing to offer God. Not a thing. And I think it's so important that you and I look in the mirror and realize that's us too. I'll be honest, I, I've had to go back to this lesson in my life many times. I remember when I first decided to become a pastor, I really thought like God was going to be super excited. I remember like praying to God and going, God, I hear you. I've thought about it. I've struggled with it, but I'm giving myself over to you. You want me to be a pastor? I'll be a pastor. At that time, I didn't really have the best perspective of pastors. I'm like, they're all old. Most of them are heavy. Most of them are bald. Most of them aren't super cool. I don't want to be those things. So, I mean, see how that played out. <laughs> make lots of money, and nobody ever meets a pastor and goes, you're a pastor! That's awesome! In fact, most people meet a pastor like, oh, that, have a good day, right? I mean, if you've heard of people in college who are like the party starters, pastors are the party enders. I used to work with a lady at work, you know what she loved to do? She'd love to wait till we were at lunch with somebody or in a conversation and when somebody would share the most inappropriate story she'd wait for a pause and go did you know Luke's a pastor? <laughs> and she just loved it because the people were like that's yeah I mean Jesus is Jesus is so cool yeah that's I really like yeah I think Jesus would probably hang out at nightclubs if he was alive today and I'd just be like Okay, you don't need to really address it. It's okay. <laughs> I didn't want to do any of those things, but you know what I really expected? I really expected that the moment I said that like all these ministry doors were just going to open. 
But like God was sitting there like, <laughs> guys, we're okay. Luke's on the team now. We were behind in the fourth quarter. We were really struggling. I was kind of worried about how things were going, but Luke's joined the team. It's time for a comeback. And instead, you know what happened? For like six months, every door in front of me closed. I remember sitting there like, God, I've, I've given over to this. I told you I'm ready. Why aren't any doors opening? And you know what he was really teaching me? I don't need you, Luke. I love you. I want you. But don't be convinced that I need you. I can do my work without you. It is a gift. It is an honor that I let you be part of my work. But don't ever think I need you for my work. You bring me nothing that I don't already have. And I'll be honest, it was a pride-swallowing moment for me. Because I think of myself as a pretty capable individual. I thought I had skills to offer. I thought I had talents to offer. But what I had to realize is none of those to God really matter. It's like yesterday we were here doing a work day and my kids really, really wanted to help. I'm glad they really wanted to help. But you know what? When my kids were helping me, we actually, it was a deterrent. It actually made us work slower, work messier, take more time and cause more problems. Because toddlers with paint is not a good mix. But I knew they wanted to. I knew they had the right hearts to. And so we worked to let them be part of that. And you know what I realized? That's us as adults with God. When you and I want to jump in, it's like toddlers jumping in to do God's work. We didn't make anything easier for him. He's just choosing to let us be part of it. This man on the cross has nothing to offer Jesus except his heart. And that's all God wants. Some of us are confused. We think we're here because we offer something to him. We can bring him something that he needs us. We think that if we have a bad history that we can make up for future actions. No. God really doesn't care about your resume one way or the other. All of us are this man on the cross. The only thing He wants is your heart. Amen. And so as we break down this man's transformation, I want to look at the words of what He says because there's a change that happens to Him on the cross. Mark tells us, sorry, Matthew tells us in 27.44, and the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In the hours that Jesus is on the cross, when it starts, both these men are cursing Jesus. Both these men are looking at him and poking fun at him. I mean, you want to talk about dark-hearted people, right? They're dying as well. And in their final breaths, what are they going to do? Make fun of somebody else. Like, we're not talking about stellar people here. You have a few breaths left and you're at your final words. What would you like to do? I'd like to make fun of the guy dying next to me. That's what I'd like to do. But somewhere along those hours, this life, man's heart was pierced. We don't know why. We don't know how. 
Maybe it was Jesus praying for the people cursing Him. Maybe it was this man watching Jesus in unbelievable plain saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Maybe it was watching Jesus still trying to set up who was going to care for His mother after He died. Maybe it was Him praying to His Father. We don't know what broke His heart. But in those moments upon that cross, He looked at Him and realized, this isn't a normal man. This isn't a normal man. And in Him something changed. And in these few words, we see that change. He says, do you not fear God? It's funny, you and I, we, we hate the word fear now. We act like we should never be afraid of God. In fact, most of us have completely depowered God in our brains to make this unbelievably approachable, friendly, and kid-safe God. Which I hate. Because if your God is approachable to the point where like, you're not afraid of Him, then your God is weak and your God can't help you in life. You need a God so powerful He terrifies you. The only reason you don't shake in fear of Him is that not only do you realize He's unbelievably powerful, but you realize He's unbelievably good. What we've often done is we shrink Him down, we make Him small, and then it's not a big deal. But the real true God that if you ever saw you would realize he's a being beyond containment. We've been going through Exodus and there's a moment when Moses, who after years of friendship with God, goes, God, please let me see you. I want to see you. I want to look at your face. And what's funny is, God actually wants to let him. But he goes, Moses, you don't get it, son. If you were to see my face, the brilliance of me would kill you. That's how awesome I am. I am so awesome, you can't even really be in my full presence. So here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to put you in a cave, I'm going to make a little crack, and I'm going to quickly pass by you with my back turned to you. And that brilliant light you see will just be a small reflection of who I am. And in that moment, Moses sees something so brilliant, it's more beautiful than anything he's ever seen. And that's God just briefly passing by. God is awesome. Amen. Truly awesome. And what Scripture teaches us is that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Only fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I encourage you to be careful because we are a generation of fools. We are a generation of fools. We are the group of people that so often just wants to respond passionately, publicly, without taking any time to actually think or learn about what we're talking to. I told you this before, last November was crazy to me with politics. Because I don't really care where you stand. What was amazing to me is the lack of people who could actually explain to you, intellectually, why they were voting who they were voting for. Comedians had a field day with it because what they do is they'd walk the streets and they'd be like, weren't you so excited when this candidate said this, this, and this? Weren't you so excited that they're going to stand for this, this, and this? And they go, oh yeah, I love that. And they'd go, he didn't say any of those things and he's not standing for any of those things. Oh, really? Okay, cool. I'm Whatever. And what you realized is 
people have just made an emotional decision one way or the other, but they're not really digging into this. We're all looking to be offended. We're all looking to have a movement. We're all looking to share our voice. We're all looking to just jump onto the next bandwagon. But how many of us are deeply intellectually going into things? Please don't be that way with God. Some of you are here because this is just what you've been trying to do. Some of you are here because mommy and daddy brought you. Some of you are here because it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. But some of you are still sitting there, not truly intellectually sold that there is a God, that He loves you, and that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. Do not settle for some mere emotion. Open your eyes, your mind, and your heart to see the awesomeness of God. And I trust me, when you start to get a taste of Him, all you want is more. All you want is more. Do you not fear God? In that moment, that man now realizes, I'm about to die. I'm about to face God. And what do I have to tell Him? What do I have to share with Him? What am I going to say when He looks at me? In that moment, he is afraid. Then he says, we are receiving what we deserve. This is back to what I said in the beginning. We deserve death. Even the very best of us. We deserve death if all we have is our own resume. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you served at the food bank. I don't care how many homeless people you've talked. I don't care what your resume is. Each and every one of us, do you know what it says at the top? Sinner. And heaven is only for the perfect. So you can convince yourself your sins are small. You can convince yourselves that they're outweighed by all these wonderful things you've done. It doesn't matter. If we can say, you're a sinner, you're less than perfect, there's only one place you belong. And in that moment, that man looks upon the cross and realizes, yeah, this is about right for me. Me being on this cross, me suffocating, me being ridiculed, me being mocked, me dying like this. Makes sense. This is, this is actually exactly what I deserve. Exactly. It's funny because so many of us have convinced ourselves that we deserve such a peaceful and easy life. It's why often what you and I struggle the most with is suffering. Because we're like, this can't be right. When you say that, you're really saying, I'm too good to deserve this. I've got to be real with you. The, the older I get and the more I know me, the more of a mess up I know I am. I deserve far worse than what I have. God has blessed me more than I could ever dream of. Just like this criminal, we deserve to be on that cross. Because what Scripture teaches is that for the wages of sin is death. But it is the free gift of God is eternal life. And it's only in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are getting what we deserve. Then he looks at Jesus and he goes, This man has done nothing wrong. See, this is all about relationship. Do you know what I love about this guy? This is no theologian. 
This is not a Pharisee. This is not a man spewing truth from Old Testament Torah. This is a man who's simply acknowledging what he has seen in his life. I know me, and I'm evil. I deserve death. And I've seen this man. He does not. This man dies for a different reason. This man dies for a different purpose. See, what all of us have to acknowledge about the sacrifice of Christ is that Christ realized there's a debt we all had to pay and it's a debt we deserve to pay. The only way to get out of it was to have someone pure and holy with no debt die for us. And while you and I, these physical bodies, will one day break down on us, they will die. Our spirits will not. And what Christ was fighting for is for these spirits to have an eternal home of love. To have an eternal home of peace. And so when we look at ourselves, we have to see sinner. And when we look at Jesus, we have to see God. Perfect and holy. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It says, For our sake God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus loves you so much that He didn't just die for you, but in that moment He said, I take all their debt. All of it. Every imperfection, every sin, every shortcoming, not only that they have currently made, but that they will make. And for everyone who has ever lived and ever will live, I take all of that on me and I pay it. Not only do I wipe out the past debt, but I establish a line of credit that will cover them for the rest of their lives if they will follow me. And not only did he pay that debt, but he takes his righteousness, his sonship of God, and he lays it upon you so that from that moment forward, God doesn't see me, he doesn't see you. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's why us and all of our failings and all of our weakness and all of our limitedness can look up at the perfect, almighty, eternal, ever-present, all-knowing God and go, Dad. And he goes, what, my child? Because Jesus died not just for our debt, but to elevate us to be children of God. That criminal may not have been able to explain all that in exactly those words, but he knew in that moment, there is a God, I'm a sinner, and this man next to me is not. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me. See, he knew on that cross that Jesus' life wasn't about to end. He knew even though his body was clearly going to fail, even though his heart was going to stop beating, this man looked at him and realized there's no end to Jesus. They can kill his body, they can break it, but this man today, he will be alive in paradise. Jesus, please remember me. And brothers and sisters, what I love about that is that's how we need to think about heaven. When you die and you stand at the gates of heaven, you will not sit there and go, let me explain to you why I deserve to be here. It'll be very simple. 
Jesus will be at the gate, neither he will look at you and go, good to see you. Come on in. Or he will look at you and go, I don't know who you are. I can't let you in. You know what I love about that? That's how real relationships work. Think of your own house and your own friends. Do you not have some fools that you let into your house? Do you not have people in your life who have terrible resumes, but when they come to your house and they knock on that door, you let them in. Why? Because you look at them and you go, I know you. I know you. And they're walking into your house, not because they're famous, not because they're rich, not because they're impressive, but because you have a relationship with them. And vice versa, there's probably some pretty impressive people that could walk up to your door and ask to come in and you'd be like, I don't know who you are. And they could print out their resume and show it to you and be like, that's cute, thank you, but still, no, you're not coming in. Because it ain't about what you've done, it's about who you have a relationship with. Jesus, remember me. And I love that. Remember me, not what I've done. Remember me. Me. Now, what's amazing is, is the story could have ended there. And let's be real. What would have been completely fair and righteous for Jesus to have done? No. Great, so you've acknowledged I'm God. Great, in your final moments, as you're about to die on the cross, you're going to throw a Hail Mary here and see if I can get you into heaven. Where were you yesterday? Where were you the day before? Where have you been the three years of my ministry as I've asked people to follow me? Where have you been your whole life as God the Father called out to you? Where have you been when you were hurting, murdering, thieving from people? Where then? Now you want to show up in the final moments and go, Jesus, remember me? Jesus could have said all those things. In fact, Jesus could have just ignored them. I mean, like, if there was ever a moment that Jesus could have just been selfish, and I think we would have been okay with it, would it not be on that cross? The man's fighting to stay awake. He's bleeding to death, suffocating to death, being ridiculed. All his friends have left him. He's forsaken by God. He's all alone. And in that moment, he's still not thinking about himself. In that moment, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. He's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about his father. And even this bum next to him on a cross who just minutes ago was ridiculing him, he looks at and offers forgiveness to. Look at Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means it doesn't matter how big of a mess up you are today. It doesn't matter how much you've messed your life up. It doesn't matter how many shameful things are in your past. It doesn't matter how many things you've blown up. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world looks at you and rightly calls you a fool. Jesus doesn't care. Because He was there when you were formed in your mother's womb. 
He was there before you ever set foot on this earth and He loved you then and He loves you now. And just like a parent who will always love their child, God looks at us and says, if you will ever come to me, I will take you back. What I love about this is there are some things in this world that we realize we've screwed up so bad we can't ever get them back. You ever been there? You ever been there where you've just, you've wrecked it so bad, no matter what in the world, you're not going to fix it? You can't. It's past the point of redemption from a worldly standpoint. The beauty of Jesus Christ is it doesn't matter who you are. There is no point of no return. He can always cover it up. He can always wash you clean. And even when you're someone like this man who has nothing to offer, Jesus still takes you back. We finish with Jesus' words that say, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. I've actually been wrong this whole sermon because I keep saying this man has nothing to offer God. He actually has the only thing that God wants. Your love. Don't forget that. Because what's amazing about this setting is you have some very religious men standing in the midst of this. Men that have memorized scripture, who know every rule, every law, everything in all of God's word. But they will never see heaven. Because they have built a structure for themselves that lifts themselves up. This man knows none of it, has abided by none of it, but will see heaven. Why? Because he's given his love and his heart to God. And some of you, you haven't done that yet. Some of you, as you struggle in life, as you have pain, as you have hurt, you try to fill your life with Christian activities. You try to earn your way back into God's graces. You try to do things to show Him that you're worthy. God does not need you to show Him you're worthy. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. This isn't to say that He doesn't want you to be at church. It's not to say He doesn't want you to serve. It's not to say He doesn't want you to do good in life. But He knows that those things will naturally happen if you love Him first. That's why I encourage you. It doesn't really matter where you are. You can still be a pagan. You could be sitting at church all day long and never get closer to Him. Because if the whole time you're just wondering who's going to win March Madness today? What am I going to eat for lunch? When's this guy going to finish? Man, I hope it's the big cup of juice today because they always give us that little cup which really just does not make me feel I'm thirsty. If you think about all those things, you didn't take any steps closer to Him. And there are some of us, we are still convinced we're going to show up and go, Jesus, look at what I did. And He's going to go, Great. Who are you? Who are you? You have one thing that you can offer Him. One thing only. That's your heart. And if you will give it to Him, He will take you. He will love you. He will wash away the debts and He will lift you up to royalty. But you've got to give Him the heart. You've got to give Him the heart. John 1.5, one of my favorite verses. 
light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I actually think it's really, really proper that Easter is on April Fool's Day this year. Because what I love about the cross is all the enemies thought they were winning. Satan thought he was winning. The Pharisees thought they were winning. All the evil in the world thought they were winning. They're like, he's dead. He's gone. He's over. And what they didn't realize is is he had won. In the midst of what everybody was crying and hurting and in pain, Jesus was scoring the winning touchdown. Jesus was going, you think it's ended? It has ended and you've just lost. I have paid all the debts. I've wiped out all the sin and I have offered new life. How silly for you to think you've won. And you know what I love about that moment? It gives me hope in my life. Because often there are those days where we as people look around and go, man, it's pretty dark out. And what I remember is I remember that day on the cross and I go, you know what? Everybody standing around that day went, this is a terrible day. Wish this wasn't happening. And in fact, it was the greatest day of our lives. Do you think that criminal on the cross ever thought that that day was going to be the best day of his life? If you'd met him that morning, he would have told you today's going to be terrible. Today I'm going to die. Publicly, painfully. Today's the end. No, it was the beginning. The beginning of an eternal paradise of a perfect relationship of unbelievable love. So don't focus on the dark. Focus on the light of Christ. And stop trying to give Him what He doesn't need. All of us are the criminal. We have nothing to offer. All of us need to look at Jesus and see Him in His perfection and realize He dies for us. And that all I can give Him is my heart. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not just a small plastic cup of grape juice and a really untasty crumb of bread. It is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is recognizing that on that cross, His body was broken and His blood was spilt to give us life. That He died for our sins, for our debt. And that in that broken body and in that spilt blood, you and I were lifted up to be children of God. And so as we take this, I encourage you a couple things. One is we go to pray. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure that you haven't been trying to build an impressive resume, but that you've been trying to be in His presence. Make sure that you're not just a a Christian, but that you're actually a child of God. That if right now it were all to end, you would stand there looking Him in the eyes and He'd go, it's good to see you. I know you. And not that He'd be staring at you going, I never knew you. If you haven't made that choice yet, why not? Why haven't you come to Him? He's there. You know how much He loved you? He died to get to know you. That's how much He loves you. And then as we take this, remember the sacrifice. Let's all stand. Let's take a few moments to go to our Father in prayer. Brother Joe, you come forward.
It was cold between my fingertips I've hidden in the garden I've denied you with my very lips God, I fall down to my knees With a hammer in my hand You look at me seated. As we take the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to remember what this is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that you, the Lord Jesus, on that night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so the wisdom that Paul gives us is again to remember that this is a proclamation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we ask that if you are not a believer, that you do not believe in those things, that you do not partake in this. The other advice and wisdom that Paul gives us is one, if we do not have any uh, confessed sin to him, that before we take this, we give all that sin to God. If there's something where we know we've done wrong and we have not yet repented, acknowledge that it's wrong and try to change course, then don't take this yet. Do that first. And thirdly, he asks, is if you or brother in Christ are not yet forgiving each other, you have something in between each other where you are not willing in God's grace and mercy to move forward, that again you abstain from taking the cup. He would rather before you do that that you take that offer of forgiveness and that you confess those sins. So, that's the wisdom God's Word gives us. And so as the cup and the plate come before you, it is up to you to know where you stand with God in this moment and to choose whether you want to partake at this time. Brother Joe, will you pray over the cup for us? I'm sorry, over the bread. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we just ask that you bless this bread, Lord God, that signifies your broken body. Your broken body that was on that cross for our forgiveness, Father God. Heavenly Father, we pray in the name of Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Amen.
In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, it said, As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. As a family, let us eat. It says, And then after that, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Dear Holy Father, as we take this cup, may we remember the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean. The blood, Father, that takes away all of our sin and washes us in His righteousness. Father, we proclaim Him as our Lord and as our Savior, both in word and in our actions. Father, thank You for loving us this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. for that day that we sit at that table with him. Amen. How awesome will it be to sit there taking bread with him and drinking wine with him. Not only for all of our loved ones that will be near us, all the heroes of the faith that we've read, but just to see him breaking that bread for us. 
What an awesome, awesome thing to look forward and what a great thing to know will absolutely happen for us. What an awesome and amazing God we have. Amen. It says in Scripture that on the night that they took the Lord's Supper, or Last Supper, that afterwards they sang a hymn. And so if you wouldn't mind, please stand with us. We're just going to sing the chorus of the family of God. Because that's what this room's filled with. It's filled with brothers and sisters in faith. Isn't it beautiful? Look around. Nothing else could bring these kind of people together except for the love, the power, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Join us with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. The handicap parking spots you got there. Oh. What, these ones right here? These here, we don't have no blocks on the two up front that aren't painted yet. Back to parking real quick, because apparently parking's a big deal. There's one place where the tire stops are okay, the handicap parking along the side of the church. So just remember that's there for the handicapped parking as well as those two spots up front. Um, I'm going to remind you guys, as always, you have a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And you have a mission to go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So get to it. Have a great week. I love you and happy Easter.